0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: Today, we're recording a new feature on our Supreme Court podcast. It's going to be another deep dive episode that will follow each month's two-week oral argument session. And this week's episode is going to look at the court's March sitting, which wrapped up on March 27th. And we're going to take a look at some notable orders, some significant decisions, and some interesting arguments I'm excited. And joining us later in the podcast is going to be Elaine Goldenberg, who is currently at Munger Tolls with former Solicitor General Donald Verrilli, but who was previously the assistant to the Solicitor General under Verrilli. But before we do that, Jordan, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about a few of the criminal grants that we got from the court uh, in the last couple of weeks?
1: Sure. So way back when, at the beginning of the March sitting on the 18th, there were grants in four criminal cases for next term. Uh, A couple of them, at least, are really interesting. They're actually all really interesting. Uh, The first one that I'll note is Ramos against Louisiana. And that's the one that deals with unanimous juries and whether the 14th Amendment fully incorporates the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a unanimous verdict in a criminal case. And this comes after, of course, the Tim's decision, this term where the excessive fines ban in the Eighth Amendment was incorporated to the states. So now we're going to see if the court is going to incorporate yet another one of the few remaining unincorporated provisions in terms of the unanimous jury verdict right in criminal cases.
0: That's interesting. This is actually an issue that um, Justice Ginsburg Explicitly brought up during the Tim's argument, right? Exactly. Great. What else did we get?
1: So there were three more uh, criminal cases that were granted. Another one that people might be familiar with is the D.C. sniper case, uh, Mathena against Malvo, and that one deals with juvenile sentencing. It'll be the latest case for the court dealing with that after their big decisions in Miller against Alabama and Montgomery against Louisiana, so we'll see how far... Those decisions go in that uh, case that's a high-profile one that at least people in the D.C. area and probably people all around the country remember. And there were two other ones that are also uh, important ones and interesting ones. One deals with the insanity defense in Collar against Kansas, and then another one deals with the state's ability to prosecute immigrants in Kansas against Romero. So next term is already shaping up to be a pretty interesting one, including with the most recent grants in those cases.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you cover all of our criminal cases, so sounds like you're going to be busy.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, it'll be it'll keep me off the streets next <laughs> term. And there's already the interesting that big gun case that we already had granted for next term. So there, um, next term should be a big one.
0: Right. Well, um, in addition to those grants, the court kind of handed us a sort of high profile denial right. in Aloha Bed and Breakfast versus Cervelli, and this was they say the- goodbye to that one. That was terrible. Yeah. Sorry. Um, This one involved a lesbian couple uh, who was turned away from a woman's bed and breakfast, which she runs out of her home. Now, this was kind of seen as a follow up uh, to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case um, that the court kind of punted on um, deciding this issue where, you know, anti-discrimination laws, class with you know free freedom of speech and freedom of mm-hmm. expression and freedom of religion um kind of collide so um that is not going to be the case that aloha bed and breakfast case is not going to be the case where the court um kind of hands down it's a decision there. But there is another case out of Oregon, Klein versus Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industry, um, that kind of presents another Masterpiece Cake Shop issue. Um, And there are also several other um, LGBT cases that the court is still considering whether the to take up those cases involving um, Title Seven and Title IX and whether or not those protect um, gay and transgendered individuals.
1: And those have been pending for a while, right? And
0: they yeah. have. Not really sure um, why the court is holding on to them, um, but you know, it's not like they're going to tell us.
1: Right. Well, if they ta- grant them any of them for next term, that'll be um, make next term even more interesting than it already is.
0: So, you know, just tune out until next term. We'll let you know and pay attention.
1: <laughs> hey, we got some stuff this term, as, you'll, as you all see on this episode.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess one more thing I'll note quickly from that, uh, still from that March 18th orders list is a uh, closely watched case, at least for people who follow uh, the death penalty cases, and maybe even beyond that. Uh, Keith Tharp is a Georgia death row inmate who had, Uh, His case was before the court last term, and he had won at least briefly, his case there. Um, That's the case that contains uh, the very explosive uh, claim of a racist juror in his case, where his juror uh, wondered if black people even have souls and said other things that I can't even say here, but you can read the briefs and see uh, what the juror in that case said. And so that case was rejected uh, by the court on March 18th, and all the justices agreed, with that, Justice Sotomayor did write a separate statement respecting the denial in that case, noting she agreed with the procedural reason to reject the case, but she wrote separately basically to kind of reiterate her view of there being problems with racism in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So,
0: And that's something we'll talk about a little bit um, later in this episode with Elaine, too.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. And so... Let's get into the arguments. Let's start off with probably what was the biggest argument in the partisan gerrymandering cases on March 26th, the arguments in Rucho against Common Cause and Lamon against Benisek. Uh, Kimberly, you were there for those arguments, right? I was, yeah. And that was kind of a busy day for us.
0: Oh, that was a a really busy day. Um, You know, the court hears oral arguments uh, starting at 10. And, you know, these were uh, kind of uh, reserved seating for the press. So you had to, you know, make a reservation. And, you know, you have a particular seat that you have to sit in. And then we heard, you know, the Friday before that the court was going to... At ten o'clock, also issue opinions in you know one or more cases, which is always fun because then you have to like go in and say excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and And we
1: never know in advance, of course, which opinions they're going to be. Yeah, you never know Um, unless there's like only one left, and then you know. But but they're never
0: hearing oral arguments on those days, right? Um, But then uh, just a few minutes before uh, the ten o'clock opinions and oral arguments happen, the court actually issued um, an order in one of two. petitions trying to stop the bump stock ban from going into effect. Um, And kind of confusingly, they only issued an order in one case and not the other. Um, So that added a lot of fun. I actually, by the time I got up to the court to hear oral argument, I wasn't able to make it um, into my seat. Um, Kind of had to sit back. There's kind of two portions of the press section, one where you can see what's happening, one where you might as well be sleeping. Yeah, Um, that's where I sit. Yeah, that's where I sat too for the the first one. Um, So it was a very busy day, but uh, great arguments um, in these partisan gerrymandering cases.
1: So I guess, you know, one of the main questions that people have is these were cases, the same issue anyway, was in front of the court last term, the same exact issue, really. And so what was the difference this time? We had obviously Justice Kavanaugh instead of Justice Kennedy. Does it look like the court's actually going to get any closer to resolving this issue?
0: Well, uh, you know, I will first say that um, if you're not up to speed on the partisan gerrymandering cases, you can check out our deep dive episode um, on this issue. We talked to a couple of advocates who argued um, the cases you mentioned from last term. Um, So you can get up to speed there. Um, As far as what was different this term, um, you know, I think all eyes are really um, on any close issue now all eyes are going to be on chief justice Roberts. And in any case, just because we know very little about, um, uh, you know, how a justice Kavanaugh is going to be. We're going to be watching right. him too. Um, and particularly in these redistricting cases, because, you know, even though he sat on the DC circuit for a dozen years, he didn't hear any of these redistricting cases, um, because they just don't come, um, to the DC circuit. Um, so he's a real question mark. Um, You know, what was different from last time with regard to Chief Justice Roberts was that he seemed a little more open um, Hmm. to one of the theories of how courts could really police um, partisan gerrymandering. So, you know, the whole issue is whether or not courts should get involved in policing this or whether they should leave it to the political branches and how they can do that on kind of some manageable basis that doesn't seem like it's biased toward one party or the other. Um, And so the chief kind of one of these issues was about whether or not, you know, Maryland uh, Democrats had punished Maryland Republicans um, for for voting Republican in the past by kind of pulling out um, so many Republicans in one district and packing in so many Democrats that, you know, the incumbent Republican, you know, later got booted out. Um, and Chief Justice Roberts said that it, it really did seem like these individuals, these Republican voters were being punished um, because of their, you know, the way that they had associated um, kind of in violation of their right to freely associate and, um, you know, he said, if you take any like, state employee, right, because the state is, of course, the only ones who are subject to First Amendment liability, that if you did that to the state employee, um, there'd be a constitutional violation.
2: Come up with the it's. It, I'd like to have you discuss the First Amendment argument a little bit. I mean, it, it does seem that this is a situation where the state is taking retaliatory action against Republicans who were in that district and had... More effective vote and penalizing them for exercising their right to vote by moving them out uh, to uh, a different district. What's wrong with that argument?
0: Um, So that was pretty interesting. Although he did, um, you know, echo some of his broader concerns from before about if you get involved in these cases, which may be extreme, um, you know, you risk having the Supreme Court pulled into. Every single partisan gerrymandering
2: case. It's, it's, a, it's a test that would be met in every particular, except for the one about durability that you mentioned. Um, uh, in every redistricting, partisanship is going to play a significant role. And because you can always do it uh, to one degree or another, it is always going to have an effect. It seems to me that your focus is entirely on uh, durability.
0: So there was a little bit of that, but much, much less um, than his kind of memorable man on the street um, discussion from last term.
1: Right. And so I guess with Justice Kavanaugh, right, the idea is, I guess a lot of people thought that, you know, his replacing Justice Kennedy certainly doesn't make it any more likely that the court is going to resolve the partisan gerrymandering issue on the merits. So basically right now, do we, are we basically in the same position in terms of not knowing whether that's going to be resolved after Justice Kavanaugh's questioning during the argument?
0: Well, Justice Kavanaugh was, um, I wouldn't say surprising, because again, we didn't really have an idea of what he would do. Uh, but it was really interesting in that, um, y- you know, he was pushing on this idea of proportional representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court has been really clear that there's no right to proportional representation uh, in the Constitution. And, you know that's. The argument is that you know the way that Democrats are packed into big cities and conservatives are really spread out over rural communities. That um, you know the political geography um, would actually have to you'd actually have to gerrymander to get um, yeah. you know these proportional representations. Um, and but you know, Justice Kavanaugh asked, I think, four of the five advocates whether or not they agreed that the Constitution didn't have any, um, you know, right to this proportional representation. And and he even said at one point, well, doesn't it seem like the Equal Protection Clause and, you know, the one person, one vote principle that we came up with, you know, doesn't that seem like it has a bit of proportional representation?
3: And I guess I'll ask you the question I've asked others. Do you think the Constitution— uh, requires proportional representation or something close to proportional
1: representation? I don't think it does require it, Your Honor, and I do not think it drives it. Why
3: don't you down. think it requires it?
1: Well, I, I, I don't see a textual indication in in the Constitution itself. Equal Protection
3: aggressive. Clause does not suggest to you something where uh, political groups are treated roughly equally?
1: I, your Honor, if that's the way that you're inclined to think about it, I'm sorry. I'm just happy asking, I'm you, asking why. That way. Uh,
3: <laughs> I'm asking, everyone seems to be running away from, uh, well, challenging I, the maps but running away from proportional representation even though as you can tell from the questions, there's a s- suggestion that really it all comes back to proportional representation in some respects.
0: That was really interesting, um because that would be a big change. Um, In Supreme Court law, but it also could go against um, the people kind of trying to urge the Supreme Court to step in and that, you know, if he thinks that this is what um, all the theories are based on in order for the court to get involved in and there's no right to it, then, you know, doesn't look very good for your theory.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll have to see what the court does with that and we'll be getting a decision in that one. Uh, By late June.
0: Yeah, um, that was also really interesting. In that, um, Mayor Brown um, argued one of the argued the Maryland case um, on behalf of the people challenging the maps. um, And sitting first chair was Michael Kimberly, and sitting second chair was Paul Hughes. And then the next day, um, in a case that we'll talk about um, when Elaine is on, um, they actually switched sides, and Paul argued uh, was first chair argued the case, and then Michael Kimberly was second chair. So it's kind of something unique to see. Especially since they were both pretty big, big cases.
1: Yeah. All right. So we have a little taste of what happened in the March sitting. And now we'll bring on our guest to get even deeper into the cases from the March sitting. So we are... Pleased to welcome our guest, Elaine Goldenberg. She is a partner at Munger Tolls in Washington, D.C., and she joined the firm in 2017 after serving as an assistant to the Solicitor General, and she's argued 12 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks, Elaine, for joining us on Cases and Controversies.
0: Thanks for having me. So we've already talked about um, one of the cases that the court argued during the march sitting, the partisan gerrymandering cases. But there was a really interesting case, Flowers versus Mississippi, that involved race in the um, criminal justice system. Wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
4: Sure. This is a very interesting case. It's the case of an African-American death row inmate in Mississippi who was convicted by a jury that had only one African-American juror on it. And this was the sixth time that he had been tried for the same alleged crime. And the same prosecutor prosecuted him each of those times. And that prosecutor in each of those cases, except for there's one where the records aren't very good, but each of the cases where there are records struck African-American jurors. Uh, almost exclusively, and struck almost all African-American jurors from the jury pool. And so the question in the case is whether under a Supreme Court decision called Batson versus Kentucky that says that you can't use peremptory challenges to strike jurors solely on the basis of their race, whether there was a violation of the Constitution's equal protection clause in this case. And I think it's really because this case is so extreme that the court took it, Um, it's unclear to me that the court will actually make new law here. Um, The the legal question, to the extent there's a legal question here, is really to what extent can you look back at the history of those past trials to determine whether there's been a violation of the Equal Protection Clause in the last trial? But uh, it didn't seem like there was much disagreement among the advocates on that. Um, And so it seems like this is just going to be a case where the court is going to say something fairly general about the law and really emphasize the terrible thing that happened here that seems to have happened here where the African-American jurors were just kept off of these juries and also treated disparately in other ways as well. They were asked more questions than white jurors. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor investigated them outside of the courthouse and came back with information that he had found. Um, And so it's just a case where... Uh, I think the court's going to make a statement about the impermissibility of that kind of racism in the criminal justice system.
0: Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, it seemed like Justice Alito was um, expressing concerns with, you know, how these past cases had gone down.
2: The history of the case prior to this trial is very troubling.
0: And if you're trying to, if you're arguing a criminal case on behalf of a state and you don't have Justice Alito, that's a little, (laughs) it's a little difficult to win your case. (laughs) That
4: is definitely true. He's a former prosecutor and he's off, and very, very friendly to the government in criminal cases. And yes, when Justice Lito is telling you that there is a major problem, <laughs> then you have a major problem. Um, one of the things that made a lot of news about this case is that it is the first time in a while since 2016 that Justice Thomas spoke up and asked some questions. Hmm. That's something he does pretty rarely. I think before that 2016 case, he hadn't asked questions in more than 10 years, except that he made one little joke into the microphone was not really a question during that time.
0: That was a um, dig at Harvard, right?
4: Yes, I believe that's right. <laughs> I believe that's right. Um, and so he piped up here uh, when the uh, advocate for Mr. Flowers said that she wanted to forego her rebuttal time entirely. And it says the thing that you say when you want to sit down and argument at the Supreme Court, which is if the court has no further questions, Justice Thomas asked some questions of her and asked whether the defendant's trial lawyer had used peremptory challenges, and if so, what was the race of the jurors who had been struck as a result of those peremptory challenges?
2: Thank you, counsel. Uh, you have four minutes remaining. Ms. Johnson?
0: Unless this court has further questions, I will waive rebuttal. Uh,
2: Ms. Johnson, did you?
3: would you kind enough tell me whether or not you exercised any peremptories?
4: I was not the trial lawyer. Well,
3: did your — were any peremptories exercised by the defendant? They were. And what was the race of the jurors struck there?
4: She only exercised peremptories against white jurors. But I would add that her motivation is not the question here. The question is the motivation of Doug Evans.
1: She didn't have any black jurors to exercise peremptories. Again, except the first except one. Except the first one. But so did the prosecutor accept that one. Correct. After that, every black juror that was available on the panel was struck.
4: And um I think the advocate did a good job answering that question. Justice Sotomayor jumped in and mm-hmm. kind of helped <laughs> with the answer to that question. But it was interesting that this is the case in which he chose to to um to make his voice heard in that he has said a number of times that he really wants to let the advocates argue how they want and make their points, and he wants to listen to his colleagues as well, and he doesn't want to interrupt, I think, Um, As I said, it may be the fact that she was going to just give up this rebuttal time that made him feel like he could use it without stepping on her toes in any way.
0: Right. And I think that was kind of a similar thing um, in the 2016 oral argument that you talked about. The advocate was, you know, getting ready to sit down and he chimed in in a gun case. You mentioned the advocate did pretty well. I mean, is that something you prepare for when you're getting ready for oral argument? You know, the questions that Justice Thomas is going to ask (laughs) you? (laughs)
4: So not specifically, no. I mean, certainly as an advocate, you try to think of every question that you can, I think, uh, every reasonable question that you can, and so prepare for it because you never know exactly who's going to ask you what. But it is definitely true that at least when I am preparing for oral argument in the Supreme Court, I do spend time thinking about, well, what is Justice Kagan likely to ask me? And what is Justice Alito likely to ask me? And what is the chief justice likely to ask me? And even in the days leading up to an argument sort of here in my head, you know, as I'm taking a walk or uh just doing something where I'm not fully focused, hear them asking me hard hypothetical questions and mm-hmm. hear what my answer would be and then hear the next follow-up hard hypothetical questions.
0: So you're telling um, us that um, being an advocate in the Supreme Court gives you voices in your head? Yes, <laughs> that, that,
4: that seems to be what I'm saying somehow. Um, but, uh, but you don't, or at least I don't have that happen <laughs> with respect <laughs> to Justice Thomas because he doesn't ask that many questions. So I think that it is not hard for an advocate when he does when he does ask questions, to feel a little flummoxed by that. Uh-huh. Uh, but as I said, I thought the advocate in, in Flowers did well. I thought my colleague in the 2016 case that we've been talking about did well as well. So they were well-prepared in general.
0: Well, um, just um Justin whatever your name is. Jordan, we've only, been working, <laughs> we've only been working together for a while. Luckily, this is one of those things that our producer will edit out. Uh, probably
1: not, though, on this one. Yeah,
0: probably not. <laughs> Jordan, you were at the argument for Flowers versus Mississippi. Is there anything that stuck out to you about the argument um, beyond what we've already chatted about?
1: I guess maybe one other thing to point out would be Justice Kavanaugh. One of the questions going into the argument was if we were going to get any preview on his thoughts in the case. And speci- obviously, that's true in all of the cases now because he's a new justice, but one extra data point that we had on him going into the argument is that when he was a law student, he wrote an article on the Batson case, which we've been discussing, which is at issue in Flowers case. And it was uh, an article that, uh, you know, to sum it up is, is one that is, you know, friendly to the, the defense side. And so it was a question of whether Kavanaugh still has those same views. And I think based on the oral argument, we can we can say that he does if, if the questions that he was asking do give an accurate view of what he actually thinks of the case. Uh, for example, he, there were a bunch of different questions that he asked that if you're flowers, you think are, are good questions, you know, taking the state's lawyer to task, saying, essentially, can you stand here and honestly say that you're confident with how everything went down in this case?
3: Well, the part of Batson was about confidence of the community and the fairness of the criminal justice system, right? Yes, John. And uh, that was against a backdrop of a lot of uh, decades of all white juries convicting black defendants. Swain said let's put a stop to that, but really didn't give the tools for eradicating discrimination. So you had another 21 years of that until Batson. And then Batson said, uh, we're going to give you the tools to eradicate that so that the com- not just for the fairness to the defendant and to the juror, but the community has confidence in the fairness of the system. And can you say, as you sit here today confidently, you have confidence in the, how this all transpired in this
1: uh, and so, you know, things along, along those lines. And, you know, Kavanaugh wasn't the only one to ask questions along those lines. But the fact that, that he did, you know, if you're on the defense side in general, and definitely if you're Flowers in this case, you take that as a good sign, assuming he wasn't just completely playing devil's advocate there.
4: I think that's absolutely right. And I do think that's an important caveat. Sometimes it is hard to tell from the questions that argument what the justice who's asking the questions actually thinks. But in this case, and I was not there, uh, so I didn't have the benefit of hearing it live, but it did seem to me that Justice Kavanaugh really did seem upset Uh (laughs) about what happened in this case. And he asked a number of questions showing that he really thought it was a pretty extreme case, and also that he was at least appeared to be from his questions, firmly on board with the idea that the history in a case like this one, where there have been multiple trials or where the prosecutor has some record of prior violations, is uh, relevant and can bear on the ultimate issue of whether there's been a constitutional violation in the case that's actually before the court.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, guys, anything else to say about uh, Flowers versus Mississippi?
1: No, be be curious to see what they do in the case. Aside from, uh, you know, I think it seems uh, we expect probably pretty much everyone does a ruling in flowers favor but then the question beyond that is you know what if anything extra are they gonna say in the case that will apply to the future cases when you don't have this sort of uh, what's called an idiosyncratic fact (laughs) pattern you know if they announce a ruling that you know in a case where the same prosecutor over the course of a lifetime tries the same defendant six times and strikes most of the black jurors you know that's a case that might not have a huge precedential Mm. effect or you know one hopes that it that it doesn't so I think that'll be the main thing to look for of course, if they don't rule for flowers, that will be incredibly surprising, and we want to see the reason for that, too. But I think that that pretty much covers the argument, which will be one to uh, remember, if only for uh, Justice Thomas speaking for the first time in a while.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right about the result. I mean, the court does tend to like to decide things somewhat narrowly, but Mm -hmm. not so narrowly that it's just a rule for that specific case. So my guess would be that there will be some statement made about the relevance of uh, past cases and past history, but probably a fairly general one that draws on existing precedents and that dictates a relatively case and fact-specific analysis in that regard Hmm. without laying down any really strict rules about exactly how you treat that kind of history.
0: Great. Well, I think if there's nothing else to say uh, about the Flowers oral argument, you know, we've already talked about partisan gerrymandering and Flowers and I guess another pretty Interesting and significant oral argument that they heard this sitting was Kaiser versus Wilkie. And this has to do with, you know, the administrative state. Um, Was that one that you were able to check in on? And did anything stick out to you?
4: Absolutely. Well, this is an incredibly important case, in my view, extremely important case about what is going to happen to administrative law uh, now and in the future. And so the doctrine that's at issue in Kaiser is doctrine called our deference, or sometimes people call it seminal rock deference, depending on which of the right. cases you're citing.
0: I think the uh, the justices really would have benefited from everybody just agreeing to say seminal rock <laughs> in this case, because they got a little confused about whether or not somebody was talking about our position, the yep. case, or <laughs> our position, like the SG's position. So,
2: <laughs> And you defer to the agency. Now, if I think that that's what happens as a practical matter, uh, which rule should I adopt, uh, Your Honor? I think you ought to adopt ours, because we, <laughs> uh, because we actually place an <laughs> ours. You mean yours or our the, <laughs> the, the position of the United States, Your Honor.
4: I and think it really wasn't totally work. clear to me whether the Chief Justice was just playing for laughs with that, or whether they were actually confused. <laughs> but yes, there was that moment where that question was asked, and uh, there was laughter in the courtroom. So. Um,
0: it doesn't take much. It doesn't. It,
4: that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's a justice trying to make a joke. <laughs> right. yeah, they get funnier
1: um, after they get up there.
4: That's right. Um, but uh, it's a long-standing doctrine dating back to the mid-20th century at least and maybe even before then that says when there is an ambiguous uh, agency regulation, that courts should generally defer to the agency's interpretation of its own regulation. After all, the agency wrote the regulation and should know what it means, and the agency has expertise in the area, which is why it was entrusted to write the reg- regulation in the first place. And actually, there are some other justifications for the doctrine as well, You know, including stare decisis, because it's been the law for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And there has been a Series of dissents from denial of cert and separate opinions and statements by justices that have indicated that a number of them have been interested in taking another look at our and revisiting it, uh, and um, that some of them believe that it raises really significant concerns. The United States, which often in the past has invoked our deference, very often has right. invoked our deference to defend what agencies have done and agencies' interpretations of their own regulations, came in in this case. And was a little equivocal, or maybe even more than a little equivocal, about our, and said, "Look, we think our raises significant concerns as well. There are some real problems uh-huh. with our, but we don't think you should scrap it altogether." So it was this sort of unusual middle ground where the government said, "Look, stare decisis is a very important principle, and." Uh, You should leave hour in place for that reason, but you should alter it in various ways and limit it in various ways and make it narrower Mm -hmm. in various ways so that agencies don't get quite as much deference. They only get deference in certain kinds of situations. And I think a lot of people were kind of surprised by that Right. Right. because it's not the position that the United States historically, I think, would have taken uh, in terms of thinking about the long-term institutional interests of the government. Right. At the argument itself, I think the justices hit on a lot of the points that you would expect. Justice Breyer was very active in talking about the expertise issue that I mentioned before mm-hmm. and gave an example of uh, FDA regulation involving an non ester covalent bond and, again, making people laugh, in the courtroom said, do you know how much I know about that? (laughs) (laughs) Which presumably is nothing, uh, or very little. Uh, And so he was focused on that point.
2: There are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of interpretive regulations. I mean, they give us an example, one of them where the court deferred to the understanding of the FDA that a particular compound should be treated as a single new active moiety which consists of a previously approved moiety joined by a non-ester covalent bond to a lysine group. Do you know how much I know about that? <laughs> right, exactly. And and that's all over the place, so they're not all like that. You Justice know?
4: Kagan talked a fair bit about the stare decisis point and whether it's appropriate for justices to overrule their past cases when Congress knows all about our and has shown no evidence that it is going to uh, overrule our, that it wants to
0: overrule our. Right. That um, was a, a really interesting moment because um, kind of as an afterthought, she's, she said, you know, that stare decisis is something that we take super seriously, mm-hmm. at least we used to, um, yes. <laughs> which I was like, oh, OK, OK. Oh, yeah. I wonder what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Hughes,
4: may I ask you about stare decisis because you're asking us to overrule Two decisions, uh, our and Seminole Rock, and, and really 10 or 12 more over the past half century where uh, the court has talked about our deference or Seminole Rock deference. And, and, and- yes. um. Well, right. there, there have been some important decisions overruled in recent years, right. and Justice Kagan has not necessarily agreed with all of those. One case that sticks out is Janice. Right which overruled a 1977 decision about public sector union fees, and Justice Kagan strongly dissented mm-hmm. in that case. And what is the basis for that? Uh, Congress could have done this at any time. Congress knows that this goes on. Uh, Congress has repeatedly acted in this sphere and shown
1: no interest whatsoever in reversing the rule that the court has long established. So why is it? that uh overruling is the appropriate course here.
4: She actually pretty recently, too, wrote an opinion in a case called Kimball in 2015, which was about whether to overrule a decision from the 1960s that had to do with charging patent royalties after the patent term has expired. And the court, she wrote the majority opinion, the court didn't overrule the old case. And that decision has a long, and I think very interesting discussion of the importance of stare decisis, mm-hmm. And under what circumstances, decisions can and should be overruled. And she said in that decision, respecting stare decisis means sticking to some wrong decisions. That's Mm -hmm. how important it is, especially when you're operating in an area in which Congress can step in and change things as opposed to in a constitutional sphere.
0: Well, do you think that that stare decisis, you know, just based on the other justices' questions, do you think that that was kind of where some of the other justices were, or did they have other concerns um, about our and maybe seemed more favorable to overturning it?
4: So there were definitely some justices that would, again, based on their questions, mm-hmm. seem like they are ready to get rid of our right. yeah.
2: And I, I guess I'm
3: just wondering, at what point does this whole edifice just fall upon itself? Well, and Your Honor, it, I think
4: what, Justice Gorsuch uh, I would put in that camp. Mm-hmm. Justice Kavanaugh didn't appear to me to be too far you behind understand. him. But the problem, the, is,
3: f- the problem is that the uh, judge judges could come up with an interpretation and it says the agency's interpretation of the regulation is wrong. And this is a really important interpretation. has real effects on many people, and it's wrong. But nonetheless, rule for the agency, under your theory, Because and under the Chief Justice's question, because there's some ambiguity in it and therefore defer to the agency, even though the judges might unanimously think it's wrong. And doesn't that trouble you? Uh, No, Your Honor, because, again, I don't think that is quite the nature of
2: the inquiry. I think that there are lots of statutes. I think
3: that I disagree. I think that's what happens – in judicial conference rooms. Okay, and, and I'm not going to obviously question you. Which on that. is the point? I don't think this is the. I don't think the government's reading is the best reading, but it's sufficiently ambiguous that I'll rule for the government. That happens. Yeah. So, so I guess I, I, on big cases.
4: Justice <laughs> Thomas is on record as having said the doctrine is on its last gasp. Well, he didn't say that at the argument, but he has said it in uh, in writing in the past. Uh, and uh, other conservative justices have expressed some misgivings in the past as well. But I think one thing that's really interesting here, well, a couple of things. One is that the government has offered a middle ground here,
0: mm-hmm.
4: right? It said, well, we, you know, ours not great, but keep it around, but change it, make it narrower so that agencies don't have quite as much scope. And I wonder, and I think it was a little bit hard to tell from the argument, whether that could be appealing to someone like the chief justice who often has conservative with a little C inclinations, right, and not mm-hmm. to move the law too fast, to move it more incrementally. And so it's possible that that's something that could appeal at least to somebody. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, um, what, about, what about the issue of, you know, you mentioned the the government's kind of middle ground. But in this particular case that the, the, the parties or that the court is hearing, actually the government agreed um, with a petitioner that our didn't apply. And so it it seems against kind of that inclination that you were talking about with Chief Justice Roberts to make like a really bold move in the case where there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of adversity on the, you know, actual, you know, holding of the of the case.
4: That's true. And that would be an escape route, I Mm -hmm. suppose, from this case would be to say the agency's interpretation is so obviously correct that even though the Court of Appeals used our deference as the basis for its decision, that you don't need to do that. Because even if the court were deciding it for itself for the very first time, that's the same interpretation that the court would reach using traditional tools of Mm -hmm. interpretation of text. But I also think the court has been, well, some people on the court seem to have been interested for a while in revisiting the hour doctrine, and this is the case that they took to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it certainly seems uh, possible or maybe even likely to me that they're going to go ahead and decide the the larger question in this case. But you're right, it is possible that it could get pushed along the road to some future case for that reason.
0: Yeah. What about, um, you know, um, when we first started talking about this case, you mentioned that it has kind of a, a possibly a broader impact on administrative law. Can you tell us what you were thinking about there? Sure. So I
4: think that there has been growing feeling, especially among conservative legal scholars in recent years, that the think of as the administrative state, the administrative agencies and the powers that they have to regulate. The administrative state is too powerful. And that is not something that perhaps the founders would have contemplated, I think is how the argument goes. And that extends not only to the situation in which agencies are making regulations and then interpreting them, but to what's called Chevron deference, which is the, again, very longstanding principle that when a statute is ambiguous, courts should defer to a reasonable interpretation of that statute by the agency that's charged with administering the statute. And so this is another area in which there have been various statements and various opinions by various folks that maybe Chevron should be revisited, maybe Chevron isn't a great idea, that it is not enough certainty because agencies can change things, that it takes away the court's power to say what the law is. And so I think that one way to look at Kaiser is that it is just a facet of a larger Hmm. um, idea about chipping away at the administrative state. And there are other aspects to this as well that have come up in recent years. There's something called the non-delegation doctrine, which is the rule that Congress can't transfer its legislative power to another branch of government without an intelligible principle. And it's been considered to be extremely difficult to violate the non-delegation doctrine. But mm-hmm. at least Justice Gorsuch, when he was a court of appeals judge, seems to take a different view. And there actually is a case right now before the Supreme Court involving the non-delegation doctrine called Gundy. Wait. It hasn't been decided yet.
0: Right. It's actually the longest outstanding case um, that the court right. still has. Um, right. I'm kind of wondering what's holding up the case, because uh, although there were only eight justices in that case, it um, doesn't look like they would be 4-4 or, you know, they would have re-argued it like they did a diff- another case. Um, right. Nick. Yeah, that possibly. They set down That's true.
4: It. Yeah. So it, it, and there are other issues as well, sort of issues surrounding the administrative mm-hmm. state that have been percolating for a while um, or have been subjective decisions in recent years. And so I think there does seem to be, again, in some quarters, not in all quarters, but there does seem to be this view that this is something that needs to be slashed back in some way. Hmm. I think there are real issues with that, both with with respect to our deference and with respect to Chevron deference, and some of the justifications that are often given for those doctrines, in addition, I think, to some of the ones I mentioned before, which is just expertise of the agency and knowledge of um, what's happening in the area are political accountability. So the agency is part of the executive branch mm-hmm. and is politically accountable for what it does. Whereas if the interpretation of these things rests solely with the courts, there is less political accountability there. Right. Another important justification that's been given is uniformity. If you are deferring to an agency about what a statute or a regulation means, then that is going to be something that courts across the country are going to reach roughly the same result about, one would expect. And if courts are all deciding for themselves what they think the best interpretation of a statute or a regulation is, then you may very readily end up with a circumstance in which you have courts all over the country reaching different results, eventually those cases could percolate up to the Supreme Court, but it will take time. And in the interim, you will have people who are regulated or governed by the statute who have no idea how Mm -hmm. they should act, especially if they have businesses that span different parts of the country. Uh, And there are more justifications as well. So it it is a real ideological disagreement, I would say, um, between uh, different wings of the court and different wings of legal academia and and probably just lawyers in general.
0: Yeah, well that that's something um you know to keep our eye on as the court, you know, decides whether or not to take up any of these other cases challenging other agency deference doctrines. I mean, I know there have been a number of Chevron cases that have come up to the court um you know really asking the court or giving the court the opportunity to overrule it, and they haven't yet taken that opportunity, so um, right. we'll see if Kaiser kind of changes their mind a little bit. It's
4: possible. I and mean, I think it's often the case as you all speculated with respect to Kaiser that there is an argument to be made in a statutory interpretation case that whatever the agency said actually is the best interpretation of the statute. Um, And so that's one reason why it may be a little bit difficult (laughs) to find a case where there's sufficient, sort of sounds like an oxymoron, but clear ambiguity (laughs) that the issue is clearly presented before the court. It is notable that the court has more or less stopped relying on Chevron, even in cases in which you might otherwise expect them to do so. And that Mm -hmm. was actually called out by Justice Alito, not too long ago. And I remember if it was a concurring or dissenting opinion, uh, you know, it's sort of mysterious Mm -hmm. that Chevron doesn't really get mentioned anymore. And the government is still citing Chevron, but I think relying on it less heavily than it would have done even just a few years ago.
0: Right. Well, thanks. I mean, I think that was a really good discussion of kind of some of the more notable oral arguments. Um, I mean, there were others, but I think we should also take a little time to talk about some of the opinions that the court handed down.
1: Yeah. And uh, well, I guess keeping along the the theme of the ideological divide on the court, uh, going back towards the beginning of the march sitting on the 19th, they handed down a 5-4 decision in Nielsen against Preap, And this was an immigrant detention case. And uh, Justice Alito wrote for the five Republican appointees. And there was a dissent with the four Democratic appointees in the case uh, ruling in favor of the federal government in a statutory interpretation case. Now, Elaine, you actually uh, happened to figure in the majority opinion, didn't you?
4: Well,. Uh- <laughs> (laughs) In a way, yes, in a way. So I and my colleague at Munger-Tolls wrote an amicus brief for the National Immigrant Justice Center, which is a wonderful nonprofit organization that helps immigrants and litigates a lot of immigration cases in the federal courts. And that amicus brief argued in favor of the uh, result that the dissenters would have reached. It explained that uh, take a step back and say, this is a case about mandatory immigration detention and a statute that says the government shall take into custody certain immigrants and certain to find categories when the immigrant is released from criminal custody. And the question is, in the case was what happens when the government doesn't take an immigrant into custody until long after they're released from prison for the criminal conviction? What if it doesn't happen right away? And our amicus brief in the case argued that there are clear reasons why Congress would have wanted to distinguish between non-citizens who are detained right away on their release from criminal custody and non-citizens who have been released from criminal custody and have resettled into the community. And one of the points it made was, look, if you adopt the interpretation that we're urging, you're not going to release a lot of dangerous criminals into the population because most of the people who are covered by the statute are low-level offenders. Justice Alito's opinion cited that amicus brief, even though he reached the opposite result (laughs) from the one that we wanted. And he cited it for that factual proposition that the mandatory detention provision applies to low level offenders in large part. And he seized on that fact to argue that the Court of Appeals must have gotten things wrong here because uh, its logic would require exempting some terrorists from mandatory detention, but it would still cover these more minor offenders. Huh. So uh, that is not exactly what we were going for uh, in writing that amicus breed. And there are answers to that, I will be quick to <laughs> point out, which are not reflected in the majority opinion. Um, terrorists very unlikely to make bonds, so there's nothing that incongruous about leaving them out of mandatory detention. Well, and if, we you also- wanna,
0: if you want to brag about being cited <laughs> in the Supreme Court opinion, you can just leave all that out. and just, you know. <laughs> Right.
4: Yes, it was a little frustrating to see that in there and not be able to give the responses that are right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> To the point, but I suppose that there is something to be said for being cited, uh, nevertheless. That at least with respect to the factual proposition, it was helpful to someone at the court, which is what an amicus brief is meant to do—to be a friend to the court. So happy to <laughs> have true been true That's very yeah exactly. To
0: well. Jordan mentioned that pre-app was a five to four decision, but we have gotten uh, many uh, unanimous decisions, including a unanimous decision in a case called Abdusky. Um, Elaine, can you tell us a little bit about this one? And this is another one where you were involved, right?
4: Yes, uh, I represented one of the respondents in this case. It is, as you say, unanimous, unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer, and it holds that the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which regulates various debt collection practices, doesn't apply to non-judicial foreclosure, which is uh, available in about half the states and is a way of foreclosing on property that doesn't involve having a whole court case in which a judge is deciding whether you can foreclose or not foreclose. And this is a really classic statutory interpretation case. I think it really follows all of the traditional canons of statutory interpretation. Uh, One of the main things that was driving the decision was a desire not to render certain statutory language superfluous, and that was statutory language suggesting that if your principal purpose is enforcing a security interest, which is, of course, happening when you're foreclosing, that you are a debt collector only for a very limited purpose under the statute with respect to one particular provision and not with respect to the whole Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And there's a, a little discussion of legislative history, and it has the aside speaking on behalf of the justices who use legislative history. <laughs> right. um, but uh, other than that, it's, it really is a very standard, straightforward statutory interpretation case. And that, again, everyone signed on to the opinion. There's a concurrence by Justice Sotomayor in which she agrees with the result and points out that Congress could change the statute if it wanted to. Uh, um, But that kind of case really is still the bread and butter of what the Supreme Court does. There are many such cases where there is not a huge amount of controversy, where it is a sort of technical issue of statutory interpretation, which obviously is extremely important to the parties in the case and extremely important to the industry in many cases that's affected. And, and that that's definitely true here. This is very important mm-hmm. to uh, the industry, uh, in part because it lays down a very clear path for exactly how you should go about proceeding with a non-judicial foreclosure so that you're not liable under this provision. But it is not the kind of case where people's political views are <laughs> involved, uh, at least, um, you know, not, not as far as I'm aware, anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the work that the court does. Of course, you get a lot more public attention, news stories, and so on about the really controversial, hot-button cases. But uh, but this is the court, the bulk of the court's work.
0: Well, we did write about Obdusky too, as well as op, So I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, the all of the
1: justices, all of whom I presume are listeners of this podcast, will be happy that we are not only focusing on the five-four decisions, which they complain about all the time. That's right. Which they could avoid by just, you know, not doing them. <laughs> Disagree with each other a little bit more.
0: Uh, well, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to kind of run down all that happened during this March sitting. It was, certainly did seem like a pretty busy two weeks.
4: Absolutely. A great deal occurred in the last two weeks on all fronts. I'm very happy to have had a chance to talk about it with you.
0: Thanks so much. My pleasure.
1: Take care. All right. Well, I think that was a good uh, first recap edition. Hopefully they'll let us do more after this one.
0: Who is they? Who's...
1: You know, the the royal they, the whoever, besides what we we're, do.
0: We're, we live in a republic, Jordan. We don't have a royalty.
1: Well, you know, it's, this isn't a democracy or a chirocracy. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? I guess. Um, okay. Oh wow! I cannot believe that we almost did not discuss the most important oh, thing that happened that's over right. the March sitting. The most important thing. I mean, maybe we
0: should call Elaine back. Yeah. Her well, line. we could probably just in case it. we
1: can't reach her, we'll just record this part now and we'll use it. Okay. In case. Uh, so the so biggest news. There was a special guest at mm-hmm. the court this week.
0: Besides you and I.
1: Besides you and I, and it was actually a not even a person. It was a thing. The Stanley Cup, Kimberly. What am I talking about?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, it was kind of interesting. Um, You know, after oral arguments in Kaiser, we all got um, in the press an email saying that the Stanley Cup was going to be visiting. And not that we could see it, but that the justices would see it. And we couldn't see even the justices see it. Um, And there was no picture. And so I don't really know if it happened. But that's what I was told.
1: And that's the uh, we're talking about the trophy that the winner of the hockey championships gets for all those uh, listeners who don't leave the library.
0: Oh, that's right. You know, you can probably figure that out in the library, too, though. That's uh-huh. true. But yeah, um, you know our hometown h- team here, the Capitals, won it Woo. last time. And so apparently they took a tour. Actually, the Stanley Cup did go um, to see President Trump right after. It's been a busy cup. It ha- It has. You know, I never got an answer from the public information office about who the cup was wearing that day. You know,
1: that's true. And whether the justices drank out of it, as the winning team often does.
0: That's right. So we have some follow-up questions and maybe we'll do a deep dive episode maybe. on the trophies that have visited the Supreme Court.
1: Um, yeah, something to think about. <laughs> All right, should I just end it now?
0: I think we should end it now.
1: All right, well, okay, let's Are we see. talking
0: about the podcast or? <coughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I don't even know anymore. Okay, thanks everyone for listening and be sure to listen in next week when we preview the big census case that's going to be argued during the April sitting and that'll be another uh, deep dive episode. So whoever's uh, been following that case, which is arguably going to be the biggest or one of the biggest of the term, you'll want to be sure to tune in then.
0: We've said that like three times on this podcast that this X, Y, or Z is the biggest case of the term. Well, you know, you got to keep them coming back. Clickbait.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, because there really is no biggest case this term. I think that's why. Right?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks for listening. (laughs) All right. If that's not an endorsement to listen to our Supreme Court podcast, I don't know what is. All
1: right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Bye.